Hey, what's up, Resonate Church? It's good to see you, every one of you here. And if you're joining us online, hey, we're grateful that you are joining. Hey, I don't know where you are in your journey, and we hope to see you in one of our campuses, but we're so glad, whatever your story is, that you are tuning in today uh, to hear the gospel, to be encouraged by the gospel, to worship Jesus Christ because he is so worthy. And of course, our Hayward family uh, that's joining us right now, worshiping there. What's up, Hayward? Hey, look to, long to see you in person very, very soon. So glad that you're joining us as one church. Uh, we are in a series called Gospel Refractions. And the idea is when the gospel comes into you, you don't have to generate virtues to come out of the gospel. No, the, the virtues just come on its own. You are a, a mirror, you're a reflector of these things that have happened in you. In short, I could say it like this, that our virtues um, should come out of a changed heart rather than a restrained heart. But you know, uh, the world could give you virtues or actually show virtues from a restrained heart. Like people could be moral, people could be faithful to their families, people could give to the poor, people could uh, not cheat on their taxes, but all from a restrained heart, not a changed heart. And I'll, I'll give you a great example of this. You know, how do we normally prevent people from lying? Because lying is bad, and how do we normally prevent them uh, from lying? We, we embed fear. That's how we do it. And the fear kind of goes like this. Don't lie or you'll get in trouble. Or don't lie or you're going to get caught. Don't lie or you won't have any friends. And so we'll, when we're young, we'll tell fables to children like Pinocchio. When you lie, your nose is going to grow. Or, or boys who cried wolf. Remember that story? When you lie, one day nobody's going to believe you. And guess what? You're going to be eaten. Uh, that's fearful. Now, there's a religious version of this that kind of goes like this. Um, don't lie or God is going to punish you. Have you heard that? Yeah, sure. So, so in order to actually get them to no longer lie, we actually push fear. But here's the idea, too, that I want you guys to consider. Why do you think people lie in their first place? What's their motivation? Fear. It's the same thing. We, we lie because we have fear. We fear that we're not going to be loved. We fear we're going to uh, not be respected. We fear that we're going to lose status. We fear that we won't be embraced by people. Whatever, and whatever we do, we fudge ourselves and we present ourselves in a, in a place where maybe if I do that, they will love me more. They will accept me more. They will not let go of me. You see, so think about this. Did you see what just happened? Um, in order to actually um, get rid of something that we do because of fear, we feed a fear. Like, it's like trying to get a huge infernal flame out by pouring gasoline. Well, let me give you another example. It's like, you know, NutraSweet or artificial sweeteners. You know they're zero calories, right? And that sounds good, but that's not zero consequences. Because, you know, um, studies show uh, that... Uh, Artificial sweeteners actually increase um, a desire for sweeter appetite. And so here you are taking in zero calories, and yet you are wanting more sweet things. Does that, at the end of the day, help? And so we lie because we're fearful, and that's why we use fear to stop it. You see, that's a restrained heart. And yet this is what the gospel does. The gospel says uh, you, you don't have to lie anymore if you believe that you live in a realm where you're fully known and yet you're fully loved. 
If you're fully known, like, you don't have to be caught of anything because you're fully loved. God sees everything. And yet, you're fully loved. You don't have to be pretending to be anybody else because God can't love you more than he already does right now. That's good news. Amen? 12 of you, awesome. Let's go. This is warming up. Okay, so listen, the lies, the only a heart that feels absolutely accepted and loved is a lie deemed unnecessary and therefore very unnatural. So lies become very unnatural if you understand the gospel. And this is what we're calling gospel refractions. If you truly take in the gospel, then you will refract these things. And uh, last week we heard from Pastor Jim talking about love. And he says, you can't produce this kind of love unless uh, it's been given to you and now you refract it. And this week we're talking about the same love as he talked about. And yet now the descriptors of this love, we're going one by one and we're studying these qualities of that. That love. And the first one in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is what? Patient. We're going to talk about patience. Now, how many of you are patient? Exactly. None of you. All right. So me too. I'm, I'm, I'm in the right crew here. I'm, I'm part of the same family. Every single one of us wish we were a little bit more patient. You know what doesn't work? It's to say to yourself, be more patient, be more patient, be more patient. You know how I know? Because every single one of you have done that, and every one, single one of you have not been more patient. And so telling yourself, be more patient, be more patient, be more patient, does not work. What will get us to? Well, again, here's the bisecting of the gospel coming together with the quality of patience. And we will see, at the end of the day, the people of the gospel have this power from a changed heart to become patient. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. And, um, and from verse 23 through 35. Matthew 18, 23 to thir- uh, 35. And this is important. Um, I, I'm going to ask you to stand because this is the only part of the service where you're going to hear something very true, only true. So would you pl- please stand from uh, your seats, wherever you are, home, Hayward, online, here. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is the word of the Lord for this great morning. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. And as you have a seat, I want to ask two questions today. Why do we need patience? And how do we get patience? Those are two very important words and ideas. Why do we get patience? And and how do we get patience? And I'm going to have three points under the major um, subset points. So first, why do we need patience if you're taking notes? First, patience grows our stability. It grows our stability. This is why it's so important. And I start by just considering the plea of the indebted servant here in this parable, verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, the guy who owes him massively, imploring him, please, please, master, have patience with me. Now the question is, what does the word patient mean? The English language does not do justice because here in the Greek, it's the word makrothumeia, which is actually a compound word. You know what a compound word is? It's like when two words come together and make it a better word, like peanut, awesome, butter, awesome, together, magic. That's how it works, right? That's a that's compound word. Well, here, makrothumeia, macro means long. Thumeia means like boiling feeling, okay, or suffering. So macrothumeia, patience, means long-suffering, long-suffering. What that means is opposed to short-tempered, you are long-tempered. You're long-tempered. That's a great definition because I want you to consider some metals that are long-tempered rather than short-tempered. You know, we have metals in this world, and some are very short-tempered, and some are very long-tempered, meaning that when you apply heat, the melting point is much higher. They're very long-tempered, but they're really short-tempered metal. For instance, the very first one I'm going to show you is mercury. Remember mercury? Some some of the old-school people here, you know, they know what a mercury is because remember the thermometer had that liquid thing? right? And that's mercury. And it's already in liquid form because mercury has a very low melting point. In room temperature, it's gooey. You know what I mean? It's like that Terminator 2, remember? You know, that, that robot that becomes goo. In room temperature, he could just form himself. Mercury, if you want it to be in a solid state, you have to be in an environment negative 30 degrees. That's really, really cold. Then mercury freezes or stays solid. Unless that, it is very, very, very short-tempered. It's not long-tempered. But a longer-tempered metal is like, I have some aluminum here. Now, you have aluminum in your home, okay, a lot of them. A lot of your pans are made of aluminum. And here's the reason why you don't put your pans in the oven. Even though the melting point is actually 1,200 degrees, I mean, you have to apply 1,200 degrees of heat before you start melting aluminum, but you don't put it in your oven that goes up to 550, 600 in the boiler. Why? Because it could warp. It will lose its shape. So here's aluminum literally being uh, short-tempered, right? It's losing its composure. Not as fast as mercury, but definitely loses its composure because when you take out the pan and try to put it on top of your grill, it's like, wah, wah, like it gets wonky, right? You know, the highest... Um, melting point of all metals is tungsten. We have tungsten here. Tungsten's melting point is actually 6,200 degrees. I mean, that's very, very, very high, meaning you could put all sorts of heat on it, and man, it is so long-tempered. It doesn't lose composure. It just stays intact. It has amazing poise. And when the Bible talks about patience and being long-tempered, it wants us to have tungsten patience. 
long-tempered, meaning you could embrace suffering and all sorts of heat from the form of situations, circumstances, and even pain from people could be applied to you, but you don't melt like mercury. You don't melt when aluminum does. You are tungsten patient, meaning you hold on to a joy and poise that cannot easily be broken. You see, you don't lose composure. You have composure. That's the kind of stability that the Bible talks about when it describes patience. Wouldn't you and I love that kind of patience? It'd be marvelous. It is a byproduct of the gospel, though. Let's keep going. Secondly, patience grows a resistance to bitterness. Now, this is just as good. Resistance to bitterness because, man, you and I could be so quick to be bitter. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, you need holiness to see the Lord and experience the Lord. And look at how it describes bitterness. To see it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Did you catch on? It says bitterness has roots, meaning bitterness is subterranean. It, it, it's beyond the surface. It goes down. It goes deeper and deeper and darker and darker and harder and harder. On the surface, you just don't know if the person's struggling with bitterness, but inside you could be absolutely captured by it and that you are actually becoming defiled. That's the description here in Hebrews 12. You are being rotted out. That your whole human soul is being choked out. And this is the experience. And this is my experience. If I, if I could just be honest, if I, truth be told, no cap, like the young kids say. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, listen, if I could just be so honest, I grow so quick to bitterness, and I'm good at this because I, I, I'm a professional save facer. Like my face will stay the same pretending I'm happy to see you. <laughs> You know, this is like how, this is, I'm professional at that. Inside, you don't know what's going on, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of fight I had, what kind of morning I had, I still have to come and preach the word. And that's, that's just part of my job. That's my, part of my responsibility and my calling. And so, you know, I've, I've grown in this way and, and, and it's done some good and it's mostly done some harm. And so this is the process in which I, I have to identify how I grow bitter. The very first is this, I start to justify, I, I rationalize. I rationalize. You know how I rationalize? I go, you know what? Why am I so angry? Why am I so mad? You know what? I deserve to be angry. I deserve it. I rationalize. I justify to say, you see, that person wronged me. And therefore, I am in the right to be angry. That's where it starts. It becomes like justice. But secondly, I start to criticize. And criticize is like I become overly critical. And it's no longer uh, easy to see them objectively. I only see them very subjectively through the lens of their sin. And, you know, I, they're so much more complex beings. They're so much, they're righteous. They're more holistic. And yet, when I look at that person, I only see their sin, and I'm constantly criticizing them. That's how I see it. And so there it is. It, it goes to criticize, to, I mean, rationalize, to criticize. Then I generalize. Now, this is where it goes from me having ought with that person to um, actually the poison going to the public. Meaning when you generalize, you write off entire groups of people. Like let's say you get hurt by a man and you say, all men are pigs. See, you start generalizing. Let's say you are a victim of racism. You're like, all white people are white supremacists. 
Or like, let's say you were hurt by a church and you say, all churches are bad. You see, not only are you hurt by that one individual and you're processing, you're judging them, you're criticizing them, but you start bleeding out to the overgeneral public. And then it gets deeper and then I start to immunize. You know what that is? You get really good in seeing the flaws of others, but you refuse to see your own flaws. See, you're good at criticizing people and yet you don't see your own. And you know, the way I say it here in short is that you're allergic to their sins, but you like your own brand. Does that mean, does that make sense? Like you immunize yourself somehow, like you can't be toxic while everybody's toxic to you. Could I give you an example of how this works? One of my pet peeves, one of my pet peeves and the sin that many people commit towards me is um, being late. Yeah, like, I'm glad none of you are late. <laughs> um, and of course, you know who celebrates that statement? People who love coming early. Yes, get him, pastor. You know what I mean? And that's a great example. Look, listen, you just immunize yourself. You're like, you get to pick and choose what you want to judge other people with, right? And normally, we always judge people with things that we're good at. And so if I'm good at, like, coming on early... And when you come late, instead of giving you grace and understanding, man, something terrible might have happened, or maybe this is a hard thing to break. They have like 12 children they have to wrangle up. These are, these are, they were caught in traffic. Instead, I'm like, they don't love the Lord. <laughs> you know, it's just, dude, like, why? Because I'm, I'm, but I have my own brand. You see, this is when you immunize yourself and somehow you look at the world through all the preferred sins and you're allergic to it and you're like, mine is not bad. See, this is what happens. And the last one's the worst, you desensitize. Because when this happens, then you start to get really a hard heart. It gets real dark and deep, and you, you become a hard person. You become a cynical person. Now, this is the way we pay back people who've hurt us, you know? But in the process of making them pay, we become like the evil that was done to us. See, it's passing through us. It's hardening us. It's making us cynical. It's distorting the way we look at things. It's taking root in us. And initially, um, it, it, it feels good to pay another person back. Doesn't it? Can we be honest? Like, doesn't it feel good when somebody hurts us and something bad happens to them? You're like, yes. It just feels good, you know? But when you do that and when you participate in that, little do you know, but the roots are, are digging deep and you are being defiled yourself. And Frederick Buchner says this. He's a great pastor who just recently passed away in 2022. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the latusum morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down at this feast is yourself. The skeleton at this feast is you. Do you see what he's saying? He said, when you pay back with what's been done unto you, you actually punish yourself. You know that old saying, you know, like, it's like in order to punish the other person, it's like you drinking rat poison, hoping that the other person will die. Here you go, drinking rat poison, like, die, sucker. They won't die, you're dying. See, that's what's happening. Third, Patience grows our gospel absorption. 
gospel absorption. And this parable's main point is how we're able to have patience towards other small offenses done to us because our big offense to God has been made clean and forgiven. And so that's the relationship. And impatience grows our absorption to receive the gospel, to be impacted by the gospel. Another way to look at this is that if you're not patient with other people, maybe you are not so absorbing of the gospel or that you don't know the gospel or you haven't tasted the gospel recently. Because look at how this parable ends, would you? It says, verse 32, then the master summoned him, the guy who he forgave, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. By the way, ESV, the, the Bible that we ask you to read and, and to study and that I teach from, is the only version, unfortunately, in this case, where the word jailers use all other King James, NASB, NIV, you know, New Living Translation, all these other translations use the word torturers because the jailers were actually tortured. They were synonymous. And so the father will deliver them to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, this is very serious because we read it from the Bible and like, you can't fudge this stuff. You know, this is the word of God. You don't have the liberty to change it. We, we read it and we have to be sober by it. At the very least, at the very least, what God is saying is that if you don't grow patience with other people, then you're gonna be emotionally and soulishly and spiritually tortured. But at the most, it might be saying, that if you don't forgive, if you refuse to, if you're not patient with other people, then you know what? God's gonna show you that you never knew the gospel in the first place. Now, this doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. Losing salvation is impossible because after all, like it is not by your works that you're saved. It's by God's grace you're saved. And it's not because you hang on to God that you are part of his family. No, God hangs on to you. And thank God that God's grip is far stronger than yours, amen? Like, isn't that so good? Like, he refuses to let go. He's a good, good dad. But this might show you the fruit of the reality that you never actually believed God in the first place. So you're apart from your family. You might be coming to church. You might be in the MC, but you never received the gospel. You never received his forgiveness. Why? Because you refuse to forgive others. That is the fruit of somebody who does not understand the gospel, who has not received the gospel. So these are serious things. You see the relationship with the gospel and our ability to be patient with others? This is why it's important. Then the question is this, how, how do we grow in patience? How do we grow? Well, three things, really challenging, but I wanna spell it out. First, you must have compassion. You must have compassion. Verse 27, and out of pity, the servant, <clears throat> the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Wow, the first thing that you have to do according to this verse, in order for you to be patient with others, is to have pity for those people who've wronged you. Now, once again here, it's an unfortunate translation because pity doesn't really communicate. In the Greek, the word is compassion. Or more specifically rooted, it's the idea where your heart goes into somebody else. Now, this is really important because what he's saying is whatever that person's experience is, you're taking your heart and literally jamming it into theirs so that you could actually feel what they feel. That's having compassion. 
He's not just having pity they're there. No, it's literally putting your heart into them so that they, you could start experiencing maybe perhaps what they're experiencing, right? What they're feeling, to identify with them, to remind yourself how much more you have in common with them than not have common with them. Uh, you put yourself in their shoes, and that grows empathy. But could I be honest? My, my heart doesn't naturally gravitate towards trust, and, and it always leans on suspicion, you know? And not to give the benefit of the doubt, but rather to think worst of others, you know? And, and the principal way I do this is to immediately share my differences with those people, not similarities. This is how I do it. Right, um, and I, you know, this, I'm not sure if you've ever said this because I say this all the time in my mind, if not out loud. I say, I would never do that. Have you ever said that or thought that? You see, by principle, what you're doing is you're separating yourself in, in, the, in common humanity and you're saying, I would never do such a thing. Well, you would do lots of other things, but you know, I would never do such a thing. And when you're doing that, you are literally separating yourself from that person to say, I'm better than you. Is essentially what you're saying. And, the, and my favorite way of staying mad at someone is to caricaturize people. Caricaturize people. You know, you know what caricatures are? It's like the cartoon version of yourself. It's like that one-dimensional piece of paper cartoon picture of you that kind of looks like you. And, 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 you know, this is how I stay mad at somebody. I caricaturize them because they're not complex human beings. They become like a cartoon. You know those, have you ever done a caricature, like, you know, done of you, you pay 20 bucks and somebody does a, a, a shoddy job and try to make you look like you in two one-dimensional form? I'll tell you the secret of that because I used to do art, I used to draw, and you know, I used to do some caricatures. You always pick that one or two features that are obvious and you just make it ridiculous. Right, that's how you do it. Like, if you have a big nose, man, draw that thing like out there, right? I have a friend who actually is like really good looking. He's tall, he's like six foot five, and he's like, he's a stud, and yet he has like little tiny ears. And when he does a caricature, man, he's exactly, you don't even know what he looks like, but he has tiny ears. I'm like, oh, that looks like you. If, have you seen Mick Jagger's caricature? Every single one. People love, cartoonists love doing Mick Jagger. Why? Because his mouth is this big. Right, and so you do those caricatures and maybe it doesn't even look like you, but because of the features that are outrageous that you actually exploit, it kind of looks like them. Like for instance, for me, I did caricature once, long, long time ago. I paid that 20 bucks, somebody actually drew a picture of me. And you know, when you look at me, you can't exploit a lot of features because I, I'm just like average everything, or average ears, average you know, hair, average nose, average mouth, right? And so when he drew me, I wasn't expecting much, but I looked at it and there was one feature that was exaggerated. That was my eyes. <laughs> it had like a little slit, right? And I was like, yeah, it does look like me. Yeah, yeah. But, but you exaggerate, right? You exaggerate something, it makes it, let's say it's taking one or two features and you blow it out of proportion. And when you are not patient with people and when you want to stay mad at them, what you're doing is you're taking their whole personhood and you're exaggerating that one or two features as if they're the whole person. That's what you're doing. And so if they lie to you, it's not that they lied. They're liars. You see what you did? They're liars. They're the whole person. You picked one feature and made the whole thing. They're liars. Oh, but have you ever lied? Oh yeah, of course I have, but that's complex. 
yeah, I'm a human being. Somehow you view yourself as a three-dimensional human, while the only way you stay mad at another person is they become one-dimensional caricatures. This is how we do it. And you have to be weary in, of your own heart to know this is how we stay mad. Look at Miroslav Volf says this, he, a great philosopher. He says, forgiveness flounders. Forgiveness is not given. Forgiveness gives up. Forgiveness doesn't work because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, meaning they become a caricature, not a human being, not three-dimensional, but one-dimensional, and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Do you see that? That's, that's deep and that's right. That, that, that's the only way we're going to stay mad at somebody is if, if I take them out of being a human and one-dimensional person exploiting their weakness and for me to take myself out of a sinner because I like my brand. This is what happens when you and I are not patient with people, refuse to forgive them. And though you are tempted to not forgive and to be patient with people, you have to fight the urge and say, I'm not that different from them. I'm more alike than I am different. That's one of the ways that I actually grow in compassion. But here's the second way I grow in compassion. I say to myself, I don't know their entire story. I don't know all that has happened in their life. And those are two ways. Like, we're more similar than we, you know, we, I think that we are. And, and I don't know all of their life experience. In fact, I only know this much of their life. And I don't know this much. And the reason why they're acting, I can't judge them as if, you know, I know everything. Because I've only seen this much of their life. You know, it's just like that period when our racial tension of our country was at its, at its peak. And, you know, I saw my African-American brothers, like, deeply pained. And, and I didn't initially understand it because I'm like, well, I've, I've been, you know, um, a victim of racism, like, pretty much all my life. I saw my parents go through it. I'm like, you're not much different than me. So why are you so much in pain? I, I just don't identify until I started asking the question, like, I don't want to assume that our experiences are the same. And, and that I, I know that you've experienced something that's very different than me, that I've only seen this much of it, so would you show me? And when they started showing me, when some of my closest friends started showing me the history, the narrative of their past and their upbringing and, and their current struggles, then my eyes opened up, okay, I see. You see, I started realizing that my story is very different Right? And, and I started growing in compassion for their story. An, another example of this, a lot of you know that I grew up with parents who were not very nurturing, especially emotionally. You know? They provided for us physically, but they weren't very emotionally nurturing. In fact, some of you know that the very first hug that I remember receiving from my memory is from my sixth grade teacher who hugged me. That's, you know, so there could be a lot of awful I praise God that I'm not a serial killer. I don't know how, like, the Lord, it's all grace from God. But, like, my parents were not very nurturing to me at all. And yet, like, I remember when my dad was dying. Uh, I was at his dining table, and we had this sweet, sweet moment where he was vulnerable, and he was sharing his experience with his dad. He was talking about how his dad was an absentee dad, and he saw how he treated his mom and he was angry, deeply wounded, and he wanted to protect his mom. And, and, and as he was telling me the story here, it hit me. I'm like, oh man, dad, I thought I knew you. 
but you have far more experiences than that I realize, then it makes sense because you were only treating me and loving me the way that your dad loved you or not loved you. And so this is all you knew. And so I started growing in deep compassion for him. And I started saying to him, dad, you've done your best with what you had. I'm glad you've done your best. Thank you for loving me the way, the best way you could. You see, it grew in my compassion for my dad. And, and, I'm, and, and as I forgave him for everything, because I know that he has a past and he has a personal experience. And I don't know all that has happened in his life. These are the ways where you become a person who, don't, who refuse to look at other people as caricatures and they become three-dimensional beings. They, play, they become complex beings. It's so helpful to just look at a person and say, I don't know everything about you. I want to. And you know what? You and I are more similar than different. Those are ways that we grow in compassion. Here's the second thing. You need to absorb the cost. This is very hard. Now, if you want to see the magnitude of your forgiveness in this parable, you need to realize the servant's debt here. How much did he owe the king? It says he owed the king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. In those days, one talent was equal to, you know how much? An annual salary. You know, I have an app on my phone that you, you know, put bot, you know, Vietnamese, you know, whatever. It comes to dollars. This conversion rate is like instant, right? Dollars to whatever, wands or yens, or it just comes out. Pesos, it just comes out. Well, it's hard historically when you look at a talent. There's no talent and dollars. There's no such conversions there. But you have to know a talent was an annual wage, not a monthly or day wage, an annual wage. And this dude owed 10,000 talents, meaning, let's just assume in today, in the current terms here, that you, you make $50,000 a year, which is not a lot for this area, but $50,000 times 10,000, which is the 10,000 talents you owe. That means you owe $500 million, $500 million. There you have it. You see, this person was not a household servant then. See, Jesus' parable is including the servant. He's called the servant, but he's not like a cook or a butler or a maid. Commentators say that he's a satrap. A satrap was somebody who was like a governor. See, the emperor of Rome and like Caesar would rule the land and conquer the land. He would take all the pillage of, of the conquering, all the, all the wealth, and he would keep it, and he would redistribute it to these areas where these governors or these satraps would lead. And with this money that he would give, they would fix roads, that they would build bridges, they would feed and build up an army. They would, they would do these things. And so when the king was out $500 million, it started jeopardizing his emperorship. It started jeopardizing the way he could roll. And so there was a great cost. So he decided to put his whole family into jail and tortured until they could pay, until he begged and said, please, 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 would you be patient with me? And what did he do? He didn't delay the payment. He didn't give him a payment plan. He canceled the debt. He canceled it. Do you know what happens when you cancel somebody's debt? It's not just that um, that person doesn't have to pay you. You have to pay what you're not going to get paid, right? Like if you're at a restaurant and that person doesn't have any money or like, man, you're like, you don't just say, okay, like I forgive you. And, but you have to pay the whole bill still, right? And then the same way, if somebody causes you offense, 
You have to pay the entire bill. There's only two ways you could pay. Either you make them pay or you pay. And here's the way you make them pay. You get angry at them. You cancel them. You, you talk and you gossip about them. You talk trash about them so other people will see them and hate them. And you, you hope for misfortunes. And of course, you know you shouldn't pray about it. But when you do, you have a little smirk on your face. You know what I mean? And, and, and you have these bad thoughts. And of course, when you make them pay like that, you know, that payment is coming into you because you're being poisoned yourself. You're being defiled, remember, through bitterness. But the other option then is for you to pay. And for you to pay looks like this. Man, I'm still struggling. I, I forgave them, but I'm still struggling. But I'm going to I'm going to continue to heal. I'm going to continue to give benefit of the doubt. I'm going to continue to wrestle. I'm just going to start choking out my desires to stay angry. I'm going to give grace upon grace. And you know what's interesting is that when you forgive a person, the other person is set free. They're like, oh, I'm forgiven. Thank you. You know? But you remain as still a person that's hurt because you could have forgiven that person principally. But still, emotionally, your heart is not quite, quite tracking you know, the decision that you made to forgive. And so your wound is still, your hurt still, you have father wounds, you have things to work out. And so they don't even know the cost, but you're paying. You see, that's part of the pavement. But you know what happens when you start choking out those experiences? Little by little bit, if you don't give oxygen, it's just like killing weeds. You know, you don't give sunlight, you don't give oxygen, they eventually die. In the same way, your bitterness gets choked out. And, and the decision that you made to forgive them, ultimately your heart will follow that. And, and that's a gift. And this is my hope, that you don't just give forgiveness, but you eventually feel forgiveness. And if you get anything from this sermon, I want you to know this, that the Bible here, especially the passage we're reading here, it makes it very clear. According to scripture, we are to give forgiveness before we feel it. Did you hear me? You're supposed to issue forgiveness before it comes to you in your heart. Like you don't always forgive because, oh, I feel it now. I feel like I, I could forgive you. No, we are called to forgive. How do we know that? You know, the context of this parable started with the conversation between Peter and Jesus. And Peter basically asked this question, yo, Jesus. And it's in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And like literally... Peter throws a Hail Mary, you know, not once or twice, but seven times? And Jesus says, silly rabbit. <laughs> I do not say seven times, but 77 times, which is like infinite times, right? And so we see here that Jesus doesn't say, warm up until you feel like forgiving. No, he says, man, just forgive. So it is an act of will, not an emotional heart, Right? But you're like, wait, 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 Ryan, you know, doesn't real forgiveness come from the heart, you know, not the will? You know, I, I just don't want to check off boxes, you know, I, I don't want to, I just, I don't, I don't want to do things mechanically, you know, I don't want to just forgive I, my, when my heart is not ready to do it. And, and that kind of logic really follows suit with the, some of the logic that we have in us, you know, not wanting to read our Bibles, I hear this all the time. Oh, I don't want to check off the boxes. I don't want to just, you know, be mechanical reading, the, you know, reading scripture if I don't feel it. I want to wait for the feeling. Listen, if you, are, if you are waiting for that feeling by neglecting scripture, that feeling will never come. 
And so you have to make a decision to read scripture every day and that that will enable you to ultimately have feelings that will actually catch up to your actions. And in the same way, we forgive ahead and your heart might not all be there, but that is the only way that your heart will eventually be inclined to follow the decision that you've already made in forgiving. And eventually the Lord would be so kind to us, so gracious to us to help us to experience that forgiveness. And so here it is, right? So have compassion, absorb the debt. Those are very hard things. As Nike says, though, just do it. Just do it, all right? Good luck. Live a cent. Let's pray. That'd be hard. No, there's one more. And I need you to look at this king, and I need you to see that it's a parable. And I need you to see um, the massive loss of wealth because of this servant. And yet this king had compassion, had pity on him. And, and how is it possible, though, that this king forgave $500 million? I mean, literally, how is that possible? In fact, Jesus tells the story so that we would be like, what? I couldn't do it. In fact, if you are here listening to me and you sense like, if somebody actually was indebted $500 million to me, I couldn't just forgive the debt. There's just no way. That's where Jesus wants you to be. And so here's the third point. You have to know that your cost was absorbed. Your cost was absorbed. Now, Jesus tells this in the form of a parable so that our imagination will be absolutely stretched. Do you realize that all throughout scripture, Jesus forgave people? Then why didn't he just tell Peter an example of a time that he forgave somebody? He didn't do that. He instead told a parable. And the reason why he told this parable is so that you and I will stretch the imagination and say, no way, there's nothing like it. How could possibly anybody forgive like that? It is unimaginable. $500 million? I can't even go there. That's exactly where Jesus wants us to be. That he tells it in this parable so that we might stretch our imagination. And yet, Jesus is showing us something else. He's showing us a king, not just this king, but he's showing us that this king is in your life and has forgiven you the same. How? Do you know how we know this? that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus in our relationship because he uses the word pity. It says here, you know what? Uh, the king took pity on him. Do you know all the New Testament scholars, B.B. Warfield, the great English scholar, he once said the word pity was Jesus's word in the New Testament because the word pity was foreign until Jesus started speaking about his inner emotions, the way he described himself, that he had heart to be in yours, that he had compassion for people. This is Jesus's words. And that's how we know that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. That Jesus tells this parable to say, this king like forgave in ways that you can't even imagine. But guess what? You've been forgiven the same. Wow. Wow. It's supposed to blow us away. But you know what Jesus says even further? And he says, I don't want you to just see the king as me. I want you to see another character. Because in verse 28 here, this guy, you know, he's been forgiven of this massive debt, right? 
And it says right here, uh, but when he, um, uh, when he forgave him and then that same servant went out, like he left his course, just being for, been forgiven, there's millions and millions of dollars. And he goes, and what does he do? He doesn't run into another fellow servant. He goes, finds another <laughs> servant, right? He finds him like, yo, 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 yo. I've been forgiven $500 million, but you know what? I realize you owe me 100 denarii. You know how much 100 denarii is? It's not a small sum. It's actually quite a bit. It's, if you were to translate it now, it's, it's about $5,000. And so, listen, it just proportionally, right, when we do the fractions, it's like that dude owe you $1, you were forgiven $100,000. You've just been forgiven $100,000, and you have the goal to look for somebody. I've got to search this guy who owes me a dollar. Boy, you better pay that dollar, or you know what? I'm going to put you in prison to the tortures until you pay me back. Does that sound ridiculous to you? It should. And Jesus tells it in the form of a parable so that he could show you that that is actually you and me choking out a person when we don't forgive somebody. When you refuse to be patient with somebody, you're literally, after you've been forgiven $100,000, you're looking for that $1 to be paid. That's what Jesus is showing us here. That the person who's choking out another fellow servant is you. Man, it's me. Remember I told you the key to finding compassion is to not see the differences, but to put your heart into the person's life, the body, their shoes. In essence, like you becoming like them. And Jesus is showing us just the same here. Jesus says in Philippians 2 that he doesn't account himself to be the creator of the universe like he can because he's all God. But he he decided to come down and humble himself, refusing to be recognized as a God, but to become like one of us. And it's one thing for us to identify with somebody else by trying to put our hearts into them, but here Jesus says, I don't only just not only put my heart into you, but I become you. So much so that I actually forgave you of the debt by paying the debt myself, by putting my perfect life into your shoes, and you, your sinful life could be fitting into my righteous shoes so that you will never be punished, you'll be treated like me, and I actually in turn get treated like you. I mean, this is what Jesus does for every person who has ever acknowledged and received the gospel. See, Jesus, like you became me. You became me. How's that for identifying with the offender? <sighs> On the cross, he didn't, he didn't forgive you at the risk of the kingdom, at the cost of his kingdom. He did it at the cost of his life. I'll just close with a very short story. Man, I think God gave it to me for this moment. But um, last Sunday, I ran into a friend here at this church who, who told me just update in life. And she had offended someone greatly, just really harmfully. It wasn't her intention, but she did. She caused great harm and great pain to another person. And so she just wanted to owe up and just like own up and say, I'm sorry 
apologize, what could I do? And like just everything, and this person did everything she could. But the other person, instead of receiving this forgiveness, decided to say, no, I'm, I'm not gonna forgive you and I'm gonna make you pay. And so some of the things that this person was doing to her was like quite painful, you know, like to hear. And so I, as her pastor, just wanted to justify and to advocate for her to say, hey, listen, you're going through great pain. You don't deserve that. You deserve forgiveness and this and this. And you know what this person told me? She corrected me. She started pastoring me. She said, pastor, you know, thank you for your meager attempt to advocate for me. <laughs> but you know what? I have a greater advocate. His name is Jesus. And he paid my debt in such a large sum that if, I have, if every person decided to pay me back for the wrong, wrongful doing, all the days of our, their life, um, it would still be worth it to love them still and to embrace them still and to ask them for their forgiveness because Jesus' advocacy is permanent and it is with me because he forgave me for all my sins. And I was just blown away by her gospel understanding and just she dumped it over as a Gatorade bath as if like I won the game. And I told her, I'm glad I taught you that, you know? <laughs> no, she taught me so much. What if, Resonate Church, if you and I understood this gospel to the extent that we're able to not only enjoy this grace, but to embody this love with one another, there's just been a lot of ways that we, uh, we can offend, but to forgive and embody each other in love and that we would engage the culture, the very culture that actually is looking for all the wrongdoings in your life 10 years ago so they could cancel you. Instead, you embrace them and you love them and because you're powered by the advocacy and the forgiveness of Jesus. You and I could love the Bay Area, love our neighbors, love the world with this gospel-saturated forgiveness. That would be so radically different than anything that the world has to offer. I believe it has the power to change the world. Do you? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this parable is a mirror image of who you are and who we are. Yes, you have forgiven us of a, of a debt that is unimaginable. And yet here we are right off the bat wanting to choke somebody out for such a small debt. And Lord, I, I pray that nobody feels like whatever debt that they've been owed that is small, that it is emotionally painful, that it is really hard to forgive other people, it's real. And yet I pray also at the same time in light of how much you've forgiven us of our sins and the payment that was needing to be made of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that we would see and we would be empowered today spiritually that not out of a restrained heart, but out of changed heart from the gospel, that we'll be able to forgive, at least in action in our will, others as we've been so forgiven by you. I pray that that would change the world, that you would use us in our generation. We pray in the matchless name of our King, our Savior and Lord, all God's people said, amen. Let's glorify him today. Yeah.